Hey, it's Jonathan here, the host of Fortune's Wheel Podcast, um, and I'm just giving you a quick update here. As you can see, the audio is a little off. Not sure if it's my 11-year-old Apple computer that I'm rocking the garage band on with uh, to create these episodes. Maybe it's time for another computer to use. Not sure, but um, I wanted to at least uh, give you a quick heads up that the audio on this kind of goes back and forth. It's not the best, um, so hopefully you will excuse the audio on this one. It's still some great information, I think. I learned a ton researching it, and I hope you do too. So uh, until next time, I'm going to be working on the audio in the meantime, so hopefully we don't have this issue again. But that's what you get with an untrained (laughs) um, computer guy trying to make a podcast for fun. So, all right, enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. On this anchor bonus episode of the podcast, we break from the flowing narrative and head down a little tributary, if you will, of the winding path taken by that soon-to-be ornament of the world along the banks of the meandering Guadalquivir River. If you're hearing this, I want to sincerely thank you, because you are either an anchor-supporting listener who receives these bonus episodes or you are a Patreon member who receives these bonus episodes plus other full-length episodes and perks. Whichever you are, please know that I truly appreciate your generosity and your commitment to learning more each day. So, here we go. Today's bonus episode, episode 57, is entitled Abid al-Rahman. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. touched on this topic a little already, but to ground us firmly in the gravity of the collapse of the Cordoba Caliphate, a little history will help dip our toes into the subject of our next episode of the podcast, What Was Lost When Cordoba Fell in the Early 11th Century. Well, it began, as we learned in episode 56, with the massacre of the ruling family of the Umayyad Caliphate of Muslim rulers. Of course, one of its members escaped the mass killings in Syria that saw the Umayyad Caliphate replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate in the year 750. With this premise, let's begin this little tale of murderous usurpers, harrowing escapes, long, lonely stretches of desert, and ultimate renewal. Born Abd al-Rahman ibn Mu'awiyah ibn Hisham ibn Abd al-Malik Ibn Marwan, on March 7th, 731 CE, this child would come to be known simply as Abd al-Rahman. 
And those listeners who remember way back on the podcast when we had our chat about surnames, you'll remember that this huge name boils down to Abd al-Rahman, son of Mu'awiyah, son of Hisham, son of Abd al-Malik, son of Marwan, which shows a strong tradition of familial legacies that help define who one is in Muslim society. And who Abd al-Rahman was, was a baby born in a long line of Muslim adherents. Well, dating back to at least the beginnings of Islam exactly 100 years earlier. Abd al-Rahman was born in the truly ancient city of Palmyra, deep in the heart of his family's Syrian-based caliphate. He was raised as a Muslim strongman and leader. But to truly understand the world Abd al-Rahman lived in, we must first take a look at what was happening around the Middle East at that time. Al-Rahman's father was son of Mu'awiyah, a man who was born a prince of the Umayyad dynasty, but who would rise to the rank of general of Umayyad forces. He led forces with substantial success against the Byzantines during the Arab-Byzantine Wars in the 720s and 730s. Between the mid-720s and late-730s, during which time he, his son, Abd al-Rahman, was born, Prince Muawiyah conducted with deadly precision almost yearly campaigns inching ever closer to Constantinople itself, all in conjunction with various Arab generals showcasing the military might and fierce resolve of Islamic adherents in the young religion's first two centuries. However, in 737, this man died on a hunt of all things. Now his son, Abd al-Rahman, was not only Mu'awiyah's son, but he was the son of a concubine named Raha, a Nafsa Berber. Do you remember on the last episode when we discussed the term Berbers, very misleading insofar as it is a collective term for the various tribes and communities of North African desert dwellers? Well, that begs the question, though, why the Nafsa? Why would an Umayyad prince seek a wife all the way out in North Africa? Well, we know that Islam was dangerously fast across moving across the Arabian world in the 600s. Throughout the 700s, Islam began pushing its boundaries further and further outward, and North Africa was a natural place to expand into. Diplomacy is always the best first moves expansion can use. So the Umayyads sought to connect their Syrian caliphate with distant peoples, thus Muawiyah's marriage to the Nafsa woman, Raha. So after a childhood in Damascus, enjoying all the fruits of others' labors money can buy, such as the life of nobility everywhere, right? Abd al-Rahman was also taught the arts of war and diplomacy. If there was a chance of his succession at some point, which, side note, I can have this wrong, but it seemed like Muslim dynastic succession worked differently than the familiar European succession, in which it, it went pretty much to the next son in line, more or less, making almost everyone, it seems, in the nobility on the table for becoming a caliph or an emir. Anyway, so if Abd al-Rahman had even a sliver of a chance to become caliph, he would need a caliph's education. But as he was leaving his formative years and entering his 20s, this Umayyad prince, under the Umayyad caliph al-Walid II, 
began to see the pressures mounting from another powerful Muslim dynasty, the Abbasids. To understand this rebellion, let's break away for a moment and discuss Islamic dynasties. So throughout the last 1,400 years, there have been so many Islamic dynasties, kingdoms, emirates, city-states, and sheikdoms. But in the first 200 years, the period we're discussing now, it's good to know the situation at hand. When Muhammad ibn Abdullah was born around 570 on the Christian calendar, he was an Arab of the Quraysh tribe who practiced a strict polytheistic form of Arab paganism. However, according to the Quran and introduction by Abdullah Sayyid, this Quraysh tradition essentially had what we would recognize as a sort of Greek-Roman flavor of having one primary god with other gods along for the ride. Either way, the whispers of monotheism are present there, and when Muhammad was a grown man of around 40, he was, a sta- he was an established member of his community, known as an honorable man and a successful, prosperous merchant. At one point, around 610, Muhammad began praying in isolation at a mountain in southwest Saudi Arabia called Jabal al-Nur, which for the past 1400 years has held one of the highest places in the Muslim heart, as it was here, in what has become to be called the Cave of Hira, that Muhammad received the first of his revelations from the archangel Jibra'il, or as the Christians known him, know him, Gabriel. Fast forward to the year 632, and Muhammad has not only begun a brand new religion in the Abrahamic line, but he also expanded across the Arabian Peninsula. Islam was suddenly on the world stage, and they, f- they were feared and respected everywhere. It was a fire lit in the driest of forests. It spread with the intensity rarely seen among new religions. The year 632 was also the year that the Prophet Muhammad died. And it was the year 632 that saw the entire Muslim world thrown into a spiral of confusion and corruption and impending implosion. Over the next couple decades, we would see the split between Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims, which would have an effect all the way down to today's world. But this does not directly play into our narrative here, so we'll bypass this topic, at least for now. The Prophet's most trusted advisor and father-in-law, Muhammad Abu Bakr, took the reins of this chaotic time, establishing the Rashudan Caliphate in 632, but he only ruled for two years until his death in 634. His and the next three caliphs would be collectively known as the Rashudan, which translates to the rightly guided ones. Thus, the name Rashudan Caliphate is used to describe this first few decades of Islam. After them, Islam begins to fracture beyond the Sunni-Shiite divide. In 661, the Rashudan Caliphate officially collapsed and would be replaced by the Umayyad Caliphate, begun by Muawiyah I, a different Muawiyah, not the father of Abd al-Rahman, just keep that in mind. This was a prominent family traced back to the early 500s among the Banu Umayyah. The Banu was a tribe within the Quraysh, by the way, of which Muhammad was a part. The Banu Umayyah was begun by an Arab named Umayyah ibn Abid Shams. So Caliph Muawiyah moved his Umayyad Caliphate, and thus the center of Islam itself, to Damascus, Syria, 
placing it directly in the path of Christian pilgrimages and business between Jerusalem and Constantinople. And over the next 90 years or so, it would be this caliphate that began Islam's major expansion into places like uh, the, the village that would soon be known as Baghdad, the Asian steppes, North Africa, Persia, and Egypt. It would be this caliphate that established Islam as a truly world religion, using the term world loosely here, of course. During the 90 years or so of the Umayyad reign, non-Muslims had endured a pretty lenient role in Muslim society. Jews, Christians, Romans, Greeks, Samaritans, Arab pagans, Manichaeans, and Zoroastrians enjoyed a status referred to as dimis. They enjoyed legal protections similar to Muslims, except that they paid a tax called jizya, which was an I'm-not-a-Muslim tax, basically. Society under the Umayyads were so liberal, relatively speaking, of course, that there were major non-Muslim thinkers and leaders who emerged in the Umayyad territory during this time. In fact, there was even a pope who emerged from Umayyad-controlled Alexandria in Egypt. And other Christians and Jews as well, though never reaching the highest positions of power and influence, like the equivalent of a, a governor and the like, still enjoyed a very high level of prosperity from becoming pretty successful and wealthy businessmen all the way up to running the finances of a region. Christians were also married to Muslim rulers, notably in the case of Muawiyah I's marriage to Maisun bint Badal, the princess of a Syriac Orthodox Christian tribe called Kalb. It was under Caliph Muawiyah and the rest of the Umayyad dynasty that Syria and much of the Arabian world enjoyed, with few interruptions until its last decade or two, a lasting peace and prosperity. And Islam became not only a military and religious powerhouse, but a cultural and philosophical, scientific and artistic juggernaut. His territory included the easternmost chunk of Turkey, giant chunks of Pakistan and Afghanistan, Persia, the edges of India and the Far East, and everything in between, like Iran, Iraq, the Holy Lands, and the entirety of the Arabian Peninsula. Furthermore, he stretched the Umayyad influence across Egypt and Western Africa, and even across the Strait of Gibraltar to push as far as over 90% of Iberia at its zenith. It was a truly massive empire, only seconded in history, well, to this point anyway, by the Greeks and the Romans. So fast forward to the years 748 to 750, when our protagonist of the episode, Abd al-Rahman, was watching his caliphate succumb to the pressures of an opposing Muslim dynasty, the Abbasids. The Abbasids were a rival dynasty who began slowly causing a stir around the caliphate in the mid to late 740s, culminating in the Abbasid Revolution in 750 to 51. There was a specific member of the line of a Sunni Muslim family who descended from an uncle of the Prophet Muhammad. This uncle was named Abbas ibn Abd al-Mutalib, hence the name of this new dynasty, the Abbasids. This descendant's name was Muhammad ibn Ali, and he gained prominence by speaking out against a distinguishing feature among Umayyad society, the liberalism of its ideology and practice. 
out east in Persia, he earned the support of local Sunni Muslims and, surprisingly, Shia Muslims as well, though that support was understandably harder to come by. After his assassination in the custody of the Umayyads, other Abbasids took up the mantle of rebellion and, eventually, on January 25th, 750 CE, the death knell rang on the Umayyad Caliphate when, at the historic Battle of the Great Zab, the Abbasids stood over the defeated Umayyad army and hailed the Abbasid leader, Abu al-Abbas as-Safa, or as history knows him, as-Safa, as the new caliph of a new Abbasid caliphate. By April, Damascus fell, and by early fall, the Umayyad caliph was assassinated while on the run in Egypt. The Abbasids left almost nothing to show of the Umayyad reign, destroying anything associated with the caliph's family, including their tombs. And the actual living Umayyads didn't fare any better, having been hunted down like animals and slaughtered, that includes those loyal to them. And there are even stories of treachery beyond imagine. At one point, a policy was announced that all remaining Umayyad family members would receive an official pardon should they show up and publicly declare their allegiances to the Abbasid Caliph. More than 80 appeared, only to be murdered on the spot. But there was at least one that we know of who survived. Now, there's no indication that he appeared alongside his 80 family members, but this one Umayyad prince did escape. What's come to be called the Flight from Damascus, our protagonist escaped Syria with only a few people at his side, most, not- or most others probably killed beforehand or along the way at the beginning. Abd al-Rahman, 20 years old, who would eventually end up in Iberia, didn't just make a beeline there. No, he had quite a harrowing adventure. And I wish I could recount that harrowing adventure in detail, but unfortunately, we have no true, trustworthy contemporary accounts like, say, a journal. The best we have are third-party accounts and our educated imaginations. This adventure was fraught with peril, intrigue, and every type of hero and villain we can find in our own literature, from the kind-hearted villager who kept him and fed him for a night, his brother Yaya, his freed slave, a Greek man named Beder, and his toddler named Suleiman, all the way to Abbasid soldiers, thieves, mercenary assassins, and any other sort of riffraff we can think of. Over the next four or five years, Abd al-Rahman kept a low profile, as you can imagine. Well, by the time we catch up with him, he's in a completely different part of the world and sans two people. His brother, Yahya, was chased down, so a traditional tale goes, to the banks of the Euphrates and had his head promptly removed from his shoulders, meaning that at one point al-Rahman had traveled east, deeper into Abbasid loyalist lands, which seems odd, as the Euphrates is in modern-day Iraq. Did al-Rahman seek aid in what was a tiny village that would very soon be called Madinat as-Salam, or as we know it today, Baghdad? And besides Yahya, we can only guess where his young son Suleiman ended up, though happily, one story goes, that he was given to a friendly chieftain somewhere in Iraq, thus furthering the claim that he did indeed travel there. As Abd al-Rahman's journey took him into the mists of history, the Abbasids ravished Syria before moving Islam's capital 
out of Damascus and into a newly founded city of Madinat As-Salam, meaning City of Peace. The Abbasids would have a good run refocusing Islamic power and influence further east than Muhammad and the subsequent two dynasties had intended. In fact, with the Abbasid-created House of Wisdom, Madinat As-Salam would become a major center of philosophy, learning, and trade in the entire medieval world. And with the center of Muslim power further east now, the Abbasids also contended with the encroaching Tang dynasty, who inched closer and closer into the Asian steppes. Curiously, it seems as if the Abbasids also stretched as far south in Africa as Somalia, who paid tribute to Madinat As-Salam for roughly five decades before they rebelled in the early 800s. The Abbasids during those same decades, however, created an incredibly powerful and culturally significant empire that would not only usher in the beginning of the Islamic Golden Age, but also receive delegation from distinguished empires such as Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire. But our roving protagonist didn't reappear until 755, when we find only he and his former slave, Bedr, walking into a camp in the Maghreb, a camp home to a particular group of Berbers called the Nafsa. So for those playing along at home, the Nafsa were a North African people who married off one of their princesses to al-Rahman's Umayyad father, if you remember. That's right, al-Rahman had come to his mother's homeland seeking refuge. The Emirate of Nakor, as it was called then, was officially founded in 710 CE in what would now be called Morocco, and it largely consisted of a native group called the Nafsa, though they were lumped into the label of Berber at the end of the day, unfortunately. However, even in his mother's homeland, they had an extremely close call, only narrowly escaping by the skin of their teeth, and they knew it was time to move on, and quickly. Now, the region they were in was, if you remember, called the Maghreb, and after the brutal rebellions a decade prior to 755 there, racial animosity was through the roof between Arabs and the native Nafsa. Things across the Strait of Gibraltar also had a tendency to cross the Strait of Gibraltar, going both ways throughout history, and the region was currently experiencing not only terrible hostility between Arabs and Berbers along racial lines, but there was also what was called the Kays-Yemeni feud. The Kays-Yemeni feud was not just an isolated local issue at the highest echelons of Andalusian politics and society. Rather, it had enveloped everyone from, the Muslim, from Muslim Iberia south to the Maghreb, no doubt fueling the racial tensions already present. See, the Andalusian emir, or simply ruler, Yusuf ibn Abd al-Rahman al-Firi, different Abd Rahman, mind you, was at odds with his son-in-law and vizier. If you were in the area in the 750s, there was no room on the fence for anyone to rest and watch the feud unfold. So our protagonist here had a choice, but he was half Arab and half Nafza Berber. He was in a unique position, to say the least, and we haven't even factored in the fact that he was technically the last and highest-ranking member of the Umayyad dynasty, which had previously ruled over Iberia from afar. This Yusuf guy 
who had not exactly accepted new rulership while also accepting the death of the Umayyads, basically was in this guy. It was in Abd al-Rahman's seat. And after a little negotiation, the vizier's people decided to allow Abd al-Rahman to lead the opposition against the emir, who heard word of the Umayyad prince's arrival, but declined to cede power. But there's just one more catch, though. The vizier himself wasn't too keen on giving his control up either. Finally, something the emir and his vizier could agree on, right? But it didn't matter what they thought of Abd al-Rahman. The people in the vizier's corner accepted the Umayyad prince as their leader, giving him receptions of hundreds of cavalrymen wherever he went, as well as lavishing him with gifts and gold and slaves. The emir must have loved seeing that, except it wasn't just the vizier's people throwing their loyalty and adoration al-Rahman's way. No, word came that everyone in Iberia virtually seemed to have accepted the prince, whom they thought was viciously slaughtered by those filthy Abbasid usurpers back east. The jig was up. Seville fell in 756 without so much as a drop of blood. Zaragoza was in the crosshairs. And all this after Malaga and other small cities and villages around southern Iberia seemed to accept him outright already. I mean, remember, Iberia was, up until four years ago, firmly under Umayyad control. The people still felt that an Umayyad was due his seat in the region. One extremely difficult and bloody battle along the banks of the Guadalquivir River later, and Abid al-Rahman, last remaining member of the Umayyad ruling family and broken desert wanderer for the last five or six years, entered Cordoba, thus reviving the rule of the Umayyad dynasty, once thought extinct. Though technically, it wasn't until a couple rebellions, led by the former Emir Yusuf, over the next year or so, ended in the Emir's head being staked up on a Cordoban bridge, mind you, that saw al-Rahman assume the title of Emir of Cordoba. Those across the Muslim world still faithful to their former Umayyad rulers heard the whispers on the lips of a ghost of the Umayyads appearing more than 2,300 miles or close to 4,000 kilometers away in Cordoba, and they flocked to Iberia in droves over the ensuing decade or two. Cordoba's size expanded, as well as Muslim Iberia's outlying cities and villages, increasing not only the size of al-Rahman's population, but also his tax revenue. But what helped his popularity in this area was his subtle, yet still firmly outspoken finger in the chest of the Abbasid Caliphate. One year after he took the title of Emir of Cordoba, al-Rahman omitted Caliph Abu Jafar Abdallah ibn Muhammad al-Mansur's name in Friday prayers from then on. This was a shot across the bow to the Abbasids way out east in Baghdad, and it was also a way of separating himself politically with them, comfortably establishing Iberia as a place for all Muslims who defy Abbasid rule. Okay, so not so comfortably, as within a couple years of this affront, Caliph Abu Jafar Abdallah sent a grand navy and army through the Mediterranean to the shores of Iberia and attempted a historic invasion. But the only thing historic about this invasion ended up being 
the cost and the level of failure it concluded in. It failed due to the prescience of Amir Abd al-Rahman I, as he had anticipated such a move by the Abbasids and made major improvements to coastal cities in order to provide stout defense until his ground forces could arrive. Well, after repelling this grand Abbasid failure, no more would Muslim Iberia face such a massive threat to its existence, not for another couple centuries at least. Amir Abd al-Rahman spent nearly the rest of his life taking to the field from time to time, putting down minor revolts and skirmishes and civil unrest around the Iberian Peninsula, though Zaragoza was by far the unruliest of the pack. There was even an appearance in the area in the late 770s by the legendary Charlemagne, then king of the West Franks and not quite Holy Roman Emperor yet. Charlemagne was being paid to fight those loyal to al-Rahman by the folks in and around Zaragoza, inspiring one of the most enduring European tales in history, as well as the oldest existing French manuscript. This tale was entitled The Song of Roland. With an Umayyad back in the seat of power, albeit a United States-sized width away from home, Cordoba once again resumed its fairly liberal ways. Over the next 200 years, Muslim Iberia would once again allow many of the same policies as it once did back in Syria when it came to people of other religions, though in Iberia it was pretty much limited to Muslims, Christians, and Jews, with a smattering of Berber pagans here and there, I suppose. Its architecture would flourish, its art and philosophy would become rivals to that of the House of Wisdom in the Abbasid capital of Madinat As-Salam, and it would eventually transform from the Emirate of Cordoba to the illustrious ornament of the world, the Cordoba Caliphate. This is the legacy of Abd al-Rahman I, prince of the Umayyad dynasty and reformer of his family's lost hold on Muslim minds. On September 30th, 788 CE, at the respectable age of 57, a man who became known as Sakir Quraysh, or the Falcon of the Quraysh, died. The man who gave him this title was none other than the last serious ruler of the caliphate al-Rahman created. According to 1995's Leadership and Subordination in Islamic Perspective, written by political scientist and Islamic thought professor at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar, Luai M. Safi, after, a, after Caliph al-Mansur asked his advisors to name the Falcon of Quraysh, they all answered that he was the Falcon of Quraysh, which he denied. Then they said that Caliph Muawiyah I was the Falcon of the Quraysh, which he denied. They then suggested Caliph Abd al-Malik ibn Marwan, who held a special place in the Muslim heart, hearts who were loyal to the Umayyads, but al-Mansur again denied this man. Safi quotes the contemporary chroniclers when they quoted al-Mansur himself, saying, quote, The falcon of the Quraysh is Abd al-Rahman, who escaped by his cunning the spearheads of the lances and the blades of the swords, who, after wandering solitary through the deserts of Asia and Africa, had the boldness to seek his fortune without an army, in lands unknown to him beyond the sea, 
having not to rely upon save his own wits and perseverance, he nonetheless humiliated his proud foes, exterminated rebels, organized cities, mobilized armies, secured his frontiers against the Christians, founded a great empire, and reunited under his scepter a realm that seemed already parceled out among others. No man before him ever did such deeds. Mu'awiyah rose to his stature through the support of Umar and Uthman, whose backing allowed him to overcome difficulties. Abd al-Malik, because of previous appointment. And me, the commander of the faithful, through struggle of my kin and the solidarity of my partisans. But Abd al-Rahman I did it alone, with the support of none other than his own judgment, depending on no one but his own resolve. Thank you all for listening and supporting the show. If you enjoyed this content and feel others should too, then please head over to Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you download your podcast and leave a five-star review, please. It certainly goes a very long way. In addition to this, please send out over your social media accounts. Just a quick shout-out would be nice so we can get this crowd uh, continuing to grow every day. Next time, we pick up where we left off here with Cordoba. Just like the band Cinderella said, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And on the next episode, we're going to take a little look at what the world lost when Cordoba fell. Until next time. 